Well, hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And today we are talking to a legend, probably not a legend of sport or entertainment, but certainly in the economics game, plenty of people know Percy Allen, who was the New South Wales Treasury Secretary in times gone by. And, you know, it's a pretty responsible job um, being Treasury Secretary. And before I get him to talk about where he thinks the stock market's going, I want to ask him about his life as a Treasury Secretary as well. Percy, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Peter. <laughs> it's funny, I've never really grilled you about your, your past life. I, I've always uh, respected your observations because of the importance of a job you held down. You know, being a Treasury Secretary means that you're clearly accountable to a Premier and then to a state. Uh, and if you screw up, it, it, it ultimately would be publicly probably warmed by the Premier, but along the way, I'm sure he would blame his Treasury Secretary. What was it like to be in that position of responsibility? Well, um, it was a big responsibility, and I got it at a reasonably young age. I was 39. I, I was in Treasury for 18 years and all, and half of it as Secretary in every nine years. I worked for four Premiers and four Treasurers, um, Labor and Liberal. Um, I suppose the hardest bit of all was we went through the last recession of 91-92 and that really knocked us about. But we kept our AAA during that period. It hasn't been kept this time, unfortunately. Uh, it was really hard going because um, I remember Griner once saying to me, you and Gary Sturgis, who was head of Cabinet Office, you're the most hated people in the Cabinet. And um, <laughs> you were sort of Dr No because uh, we had to do a lot of pretty harsh cutting uh, of departments and the like to keep our finances uh, on track. And yet uh, we made some very big reforms. I was particularly interested in reforming the entire budget and accounting system, which was antiquated. And we led that in Australia in bringing in a modern accounting and budgeting system. And we also corporatized our government trading enterprises, which later got privatized. We did privatize the state bank and the GIO at the time, but we put all our government enterprises on a commercial basis. I've written about this and what was achieved. And that played a very big part in getting through the recession because they were then starting to make profits. They were paying dividends, which we could then use for education and health and social purposes instead of um, basically being um, um, uh, sort of workshops for a lot of people who weren't really doing productive work. We have the workforce effectively in railways, in electricity, in water and so forth, mm. and turned them into very profitable enterprises which could then support the social purposes of government and set them up later, of course, to be uh, very valuable businesses that could be sold um, because they weren't really critical to the public purpose. And it's interesting you're saying that you're the most hated a person by cabinet, uh, when you think about it, what you were doing was a big challenge to the way the whole world saw government. It wasn't like, uh, can, can you just give us the time frame? What time frame are we talking? Because well, I was secretary from 85 to 94, roughly nine years, but they're an exciting period, Peter. Yes. This was a period of major microeconomic reform. So I was going to the loan council meetings with Nick Reiner and Neville Rand to begin with, and Barry Unsworth, and then John Fay later. And uh, this was a period of major microeconomic reform in Australia. And we were doing it at the state level. We were fixing the state's finances, basically getting the records right. I mean, 
we, we developed a balance sheet for the state, which didn't exist. No <laughs> one knew what the debt of the state was or its assets. We measured all that. So you could finally get a picture of what both the government trading enterprises were doing and what's called the general government sector funded by the taxpayer and separating the two and saying, look, one should be run as a business. The other thing, other bit is really run as a charity on, be, on behalf of the taxpayers for education and health and social purposes. And so I'm bundling that and, um, and as I said, getting the records right, getting the budget papers more transparent, putting ourselves on accrual accounting that didn't exist before. Uh, we were just on simple cash accounting. Um, and I won't go into the technical things. We, we adopted United Nations, IMF, ABS accounting standards for presenting our accounts. Before that, we could make up the deficit each year. We could make any, we could make it a surplus or a deficit. There were no rules, Peter. So we yeah. finally introduced the rules and other states followed. And then finally the Commonwealth was about the last. It, it came in too. So it was, it was a very exciting period for people in accounting, in finance, in uh, economic management. Um, they were the golden years, but they were hard years. Well, <laughs> you're helped by the fact that a Labor government, namely Hawke and Keating, were yeah. also embracing the kind of policies you would have expected more of a Conservative government. Was, exactly. was it made easier at your level? Um, well, it was in a sense um, in that later on, Bob Carr, who was in opposition, didn't really actively oppose what we were doing, and that was helpful. So there was a kind of camaraderie that developed in a, um, a unison. So you had uh, Griner, but you also had state Labor premiers uh, agreeing on things and federally. And Hawke was just a wonderful chairman of meetings. Paul Keating in those meetings was... Um, the one who was really pushing hard for reform, as was Griner and a few others. Um, and then there was Bob, who acted as the kind of uh, conciliator and mediator. And the two were chalk and cheese. They didn't really get on very well because Keating wanted to move faster, whereas Hawke wanted to get agreement in the room. But between them, they were really a magical pair. And But Griner played an important part in that as well. Did you ever cop the ire of Paul Keating? Because he, he doesn't suffer opponents easily. I knew him in my youth, and that's another story. <laughs> so I knew him well in his teens, uh, but that's another story. So we were friends, but yes, I did cop it once um, at a public forum. He was saying um, the states shouldn't uh, be borrowing overseas. They should be borrowing locally. So I got up and uh, asked him and said, well, all you're asking us to do is to borrow through the Westpacs, the ANZ Bank and all the others. And guess where they'll get the money from overseas, but they'll take, take a clip halfway. Why should we pay, pay them a clip when we can go direct? Well, he got stuck into me. And all the bankers in the room started applauding him. <laughs> I said to them later, do you really want to do business with us? I've taken a note of all of you. <laughs> I prefer to do business overseas where I can get the money directly rather than through your back door. <laughs> Yeah, that's a funny, funny yeah. story. Uh, and look, how, how, how like you said, you, you lived through the recession. Um, and I, and I, I, I interviewed Paul Keating a number of times after the budget. And I, I do remember saying to him when interest rates, home loan interest rates were around 17%. You know, um, I actually asked him, I said, a lot of journalists at the time were asking him, you know, uh, what's going to happen to interest rates? And he said, well, it's a budget. I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, able to even discuss interest rates. Of course, treasurers get in a lot of trouble when they talk interest rates, as you well know. And so I, I put it to him 
when he came into the, I was working for Triple M in those days, he came into the Triple M newsroom in Press Alley in Canberra. I said, well, look, I know you won't talk about interest rates uh, and where they're going. I said, but what if your niece came to you, Paul, and said, Uncle Paul, I'm getting a home loan. Should I go for fixed or variable? Well, he kind of had a bit of a wry smile. He said, well, in that context, if my daughter, grand, my niece asked me, I'd probably say the history shows that variable tends to be better than fixed. And, of course, he cut interest rates seven or eight times after that particular interview. So I really nailed it. But was it hard for a treasurer like you with your economics background trying to comprehend what interest rates at 17% might mean eventually. Did you fear it could end up in a recession? Um, yes. It, I mean, the, the, the interest rates did get, uh, I mean, they uh, got very high. Uh, we, we had a big property boom in the late 80s, you'll recall. Yes. And it punctured that boom. And we also had uh, a home fund scheme, which got seriously into trouble. The scheme to help low-income people adopting um, the American mortgage-backed securities market. I'd set up FANMAC actually to uh, act as one of the first mortgage-backed securities uh, originators in Australia. It's now Resimac, one of the largest companies. Um, I established that through Treasury. We had a 20% shareholding in it, and we got a whole lot of other private shareholders in, and the idea was to foster a private market, but our housing minister at the time said, well, why don't we use this for public purposes? We'll, we'll establish home fund. Well, the problem with home fund, it ended up as a kind of subprime mortgage yeah. <laughs> lender by the, by the cooperative housing societies backed by the State Department of Housing. And uh, it got itself into serious trouble when the interest rates hit that height, even though people could refund their, uh, they could refinance their loans, but in truth, most of them were too poor to do it. There were, there were people in there, often refugees and others who had no income, no jobs, and it went the way of the US. We, we had our own little incident and other states had it too. And so that was a, re, a very big problem in the early 90s for us when uh, it went uh, under um, and lost some money. Um, so that was the major outcome for us of the recession was the home fund scheme and the housing department going asunder. But it, it was a... Uh, did we anticipate the recession? Not really. Um, it, it happened. Um, it took a long time to get out of it, much faster than this time. This time we've had a V-shaped recovery, as you know. Um, that time it took a few years to get out of it. Even when I left Treasury in 94 and I went on to become finance director of the Boral Group at that time, um, uh, we were still reducing the deficit to get over. It was a long, painful period. This time... <laughs> Things have recovered so quickly. Yeah, I can remember in 1996, um, after um, John Howard won the election, I think Amanda Vanstone was uh, Minister for um, for Employment, and she was saying, I feel like a, a bit like a, an old farmer waiting for the, the rain to break the drought because the economy was doing well, but the jobs weren't being created yeah. as fast as we've seen uh, it with this particular rebound. Yeah, yes, yes. It's a, this has been a very different recession. It's probably been our deepest recession since the Great Depression, but the shortest one. I mean, it's been very short. But then it was a supply shock rather than a demand shock. It wasn't because of interest rates. It was because governments decided to have a lockdown to save our health. And that's helped. That's worked. But the consequences for the economy were, uh, uh, frankly, disastrous, but quite short term. Yeah. 
because once that, that, those lockdowns lifted, even though they've been repeated, uh, things came back to normal pretty quickly. So it was a, a supply shock rather than a demand shock, which most recessions are. It should create some amazing PhDs for economic students down the track. <laughs> it will. <laughs> yes, it will. Uh, and of course, the big question I think going forward, Peter, is are we going to go back into secular stagnation, or as some are saying, stagflation, um, or are we in what has been called the Roaring Twenties? Are we going into a new uh, era of very rapid growth and um, and uh, uh, and higher living standards and uh, and breaking out of that malaise which the economies around the world have suffered since the GFC. And that, that's a really interesting debate. Yeah. What, what's your best guess, Perth, on that? I am worried we could go back into secular stagnation. I'm not sure about stagflation. I still think most of the inflation is temporary, mm. sort of with the uh, central banks and the treasuries on that one, although it is proving somewhat persistent, as we see. And there may be some structural problems coming out of the pandemic. Um, that um, are more permanent, which could push up inflation. But um, we're also suffering, the world's suffering from a massive debt mountain. <clears throat> and this has gone on for 40 years, there's credit creation. And uh, governments are now deeply in debt because of the uh, fiscal stimulus during the pandemic, mm. um, which was necessary. And I mean, one view is that central banks will hold interest rates low and let inflation, if you like, not rip, but let it run higher than the normal two to three percent. It could be running three, four percent, even up to five percent for some years. One view is the central banks will tolerate that and they will keep in interest rates fairly low. In other words, keep negative rates in order to wear down that debt mountain. Yeah. Um, we've got to at some point deleverage. We can either do it through a Great Depression like the 1930s, or we can inflate our way out of it or grow out of it. So if we don't go back to strong growth and grow our way out of it, one way to do it is to inflate our way out of it. From investors' point of view, that could be quite good. We'd have low interest rates um, with uh, high inflation, but it depends what you're in. <laughs> I mean, for share markets, uh, uh, stagflationary periods are not that good, as I showed in my newsletter last week. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you're in certain things like commodities or gold or um, certain other things, it becomes a very selective market then. Um, for, from an investor's point of view, continued low interest rates uh, could be good. Okay, so you, you, you've ventured into the stock market and I mm. always enjoy your, your weekend newsletter, uh, Perth. Um, and I guess the first question before I ask you where you think we're, we're heading is, why, why did you progress from being, uh, in a sense, an economic manager of a state to becoming a, a, a person who's always preoccupied with working out where the stock market might be going? Well, I'll be honest. Uh, the GFC caught me out as an economist. Uh, I've been investing in the market and so forth. We have to remember the, the previous big crash in the year 2000, um, I was in the uh, state superannuation fund. After that, someone talked me into setting up my own self-managed super fund. And, um, and look, things were going pretty swimmingly because in the 2000 crash, the Australian stock market didn't fall much. The American did because they had a false dot-com boom, which then bust. It was the internet revolution, but they had overvalued it. It hadn't really matured. And so it crashed. 
And in Australia, we didn't feel it much. I didn't feel it much. Along came the GFC. I was by then in the self-managed super fund and I uh, had moved from owning a number of residential properties I bought during my life into uh, listed property trusts. And you know what happened to them? They collapsed 80%. And suddenly I saw my portfolio go through the floor. And um, I must say, I sold somewhat towards the bottom. So I lost quite a bit during the GFC. I thought I uh, could understand this uh, reasonably well that I could, but I never really experienced a big crash, but I realized emotionally, I couldn't really deal with it that well. So out of that, with some friends who'd had a similar experience, I said, there must be a better way of trying to manage shares where you reduce risk, but can get still get a reasonable return. And so I got interested in market timing and particularly trend following and um, as a way of reducing risk. I don't think it can really beat the market that much, but it can reduce risk. And uh, so I started applying that and we started a small business. And uh, as you know, uh, we then sold it to a broker and then Alan Kohler had it and then you had it. And, and uh, then we closed it, but I keep uh, a newsletter going just for the fun of it. Uh, I suppose the reason I keep it going is one, I like to keep an eye on markets, having a self-managed super fund like you and your clients um, to see what's happening. But also as an economist, the interesting thing is if you write about share markets, people will read about the economics. If I just wrote an economics news. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned that trick a long time ago. Uh, a long time ago. So uh, I combined the two. And in, in the market in many ways is the best leading indicator of the economy because day to day, it reflects the sentiments of investors. Hmm. And so um, it's a terrific leading indicator. But yep. then around that, you can talk then about why is investor sentiment changing? And that comes back often to two fundamentals. Yeah. Although rationality isn't always, um, you know, uh, it doesn't always predominate. So uh, irrational factors can come in too. I must admit, over my, my lifetime, Perse, I've, I've realised that no one can be accurate in tipping where a market's going but i have found that if you put the consensus of very very good market analysts together you often do get warnings warnings in the past when i was young and stupid i ignored but ones i think make me a little bit more cautious and so if caution leads to a, a more defensive um, spin on my portfolio invariably I can soften the blow when, when those crashes come, but some crashes are often a bit tricky. It, it certainly is. Uh, I mean, when I look at back at stock market crashes, uh, leaving aside the pandemic, which was a black swan and it, it suddenly came, but obviously the smarties could see that once it hit Italy and Italy virtually closed down, mm. they then amongst themselves said, why should it stay in Italy? <laughs> right. Why shouldn't it hit Europe, America, Australia? And, then they started exiting the market after February the 20th last year. And boy, did we have a crash. I mean, we were down 37% uh, through the whole. It wasn't as bad as the GFC when we were down about 55%. But it was a bad crash, but we bounced back quickly. But two things um, normally bring crashes, either energy prices or interest rates. And uh, we know inverse yield curves. And when the short-term interest rates overtakes the long-term interest rates, that's a very dangerous signal. But that doesn't exist at present. And the other one is energy prices, which are at present taking off. Mm -hmm. So that's the one really to watch, I think, too, at present. Uh, the interest rate one, possibly with quantitative easing being tapered, we could see the long-term rate going up and that would have an effect on the market. So I think at present, the market's a little nervous in that 
how far will quantitative easing, uh, quantitative tightening go? And the other one is how far these energy prices will go. Is that just a temporary blip? If so, we'll get over it. And they seem to be the two big things. There's lots of other things like the Chinese uh, property bust uh, that's happening. Yes, that could impact Australia more than others. Um, there's other things like the American debt ceiling. Will they, will they usually get over that one? Uh, it's within the control of the Democrats to fix that. Um, there's also just the risk that the COVID could come back. We're learning now that we all need booster shots because the, the vaccine wanes after six months and isn't that effective. Mm. So uh, governments need to roll out those shots again next year. And so there are always these imponderables, but I think the two big ones we're really all watching are interest rates and energy prices because traditionally they've been the ones that have undercut the market. Okay, so let me share with my um, viewers and listeners um, your current view uh, from your newsletter, and you're basically saying that the short-term view looks bearish, but the medium to long-term looks bullish. Is that the right interpretation? Well, it was till yesterday. Uh, as I mentioned in the newsletter, it could change this week, and it has. Today, on our short to medium-term model, the market's bullish again. It's, yeah, I, I was hoping you'd say that because that was my best guess as well, but I wanted you to, to agree you with tied this. You tied this interview perfectly, but I just checked the market before and I thought it would happen yesterday or Friday, um, but it's happened today. Uh, effectively, the 10-day moving uh, average or trend line of the market has overtaken the 30-day mm. trend line, and, and that's a really good sign. Um, um, long term, it's, it's very bullish, although it's, it's showing some fatigue. The COPOC indicator... Uh, has flattened uh, after, uh, you know, the, the bull market since last year, since uh, March last year, uh, which suggests the market is taking a breather in, in a long-term sense. Now, whether it will then keep going up or whether it will turn, uh, I can't tell. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, both but the, are looking pretty good today. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the, the your medium to long-term was looking good. Explain to my um, uh, listeners and viewers why the long, medium long-term looks good. Yeah, look, it's a, we did a lot of model testing and we came down really with two indicators, which we think basically tell the whole story. We could add a whole lot of other indicators, but they didn't add any value. One is to take the 30-day trend line, moving average of the All Ords Index. The other one is the 300-day uh, trend line. And if the 30-day trend line is above the 300-day trend line, then it's really telling us over the long term the market is bullish. It's it's um, running ahead of itself. Yeah. On the other hand, if the 30-day trend line falls below the 300-day trend line, as happened last year during the crash and happened in the, during the GFC, but it is a this is a slow-moving model compared with the shorter-term model. Then you you know you're in a bear market, yeah. uh, and you have to wait for that 30-day trend line to again move up above the. 300-day one. At the same time, we look at the COPOC indicator. The COPOC is remarkably accurate in Australia's case. It's almost had 100% accuracy. I think it's had 100% accuracy. In other markets, about 70%. But when the COPOC indicator um, bottoms, it gets into negative territory and then starts turning up, that the point where it starts turning up, you pretty well know that the bear market is over. Mm. And, and that so happened uh, pretty early last year after the crash. So, so how long before you get good signals with COPOC? Like, for example, at the moment, COPOC 
has been rising because we're yeah. in the core market. I think it has levelled off a little bit, hasn't it, in recent times? Yeah. Uh, the COPOC we've got to be a little careful with. It's it's really only a signal for the end of a bear market when it bottoms in negative territory. The experts in this say, look, where it tops can be unreliable because it can have a top and then go down a bit and keep going up. No, we're going to ask that question. Yeah. And that's happened often. But when it gets negative and, and bottoms, it's very rare that it doesn't keep going up again. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very reliable signal uh, for the end of a bear market. It's not that reliable a signal for the end of a bull market. Although when it starts flattening out as it's doing now, it may signal the end of a bull market, but it may also just signal the, the bull market's having a breather mm. before it uh, takes off again. Yeah, so therefore, the, the fact that I use my gut feeling and history to buy a whole lot of stocks at the bottom of this most recent collapse of the market, I, I should have just gone to your Copoc. That, that would have actually confirmed that I was right. I could have doubled my purchases. Well, the Copoc, I mean, is doesn't... doesn't um, bottom exactly at the bottom of the index right yeah. i think it bottomed in about i'd have to check the data but it was either may or july or something like that may june still, there's a few there's three four months delay but but still if one had bought in at that point you're right one was buying in and at a depressed market you wouldn't mm. have been buying in at the very bottom of the market because it's a trend following system and with any trend system there's a lag okay now you know, I always try to marry the stuff that you do with my economic assessments as well. And I interviewed Bill Evans last week. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, come across him in your time. And Bill thinks oh, yes. yeah, yeah. And Bill, Bill thinks the Australian economy is going to grow by 7% next year. That's a huge number, isn't it? 7%. Yes, he's very bullish. Yeah. So, uh, well, I think it's 7% next year, Peter. I think he's got zero for this year, which no one else has. Yeah. And I think when I last looked, and he had about 7% for next year, so it's a massive turnaround, but more than any other economist out there. Mm -hmm. But he could be right. I mean, it depends what happens in the December quarter, whether we still get pretty flat growth or negative growth. Yeah. So so I guess my, my discussion point is this, that if we have an economy growing at 7%, would you then think that that would factor into pretty good Australian company profitability and therefore be a nice base for share prices to keep rising over 2022? Well, one would think so. Um, we've had a pretty rough journey last year, and then we thought we were out of it, and suddenly Delta uh, arrived and uh, that dreadful strain of COVID, and we're back in lockdown, um, and things really got worse. And so we've been sort of through three waves of this uh, COVID, and hopefully the worst is over. And so the positive things for the market is that um, there is some slowdown in world growth, I think, happening. And as a result, central banks may not um, put the uh, may not start quantitatively tightening as fast as we thought. And interest rates may stay reasonably low. Uh, I think we're in a bit of a fragile period. So interest rates may stay low. If at the same time the economy does recover, and if Bill's right, and we have such a strong recovery, even if it doesn't happen in, in other countries, or like the OECD is not as optimistic, then yes, the outlook uh, for companies and others should be very good. I mean, we're coming out of a bleak period, two years of a bleak period. People are getting back to work, um, and the economy is regenerating. 
So it, it should be a good year by all accounts. It's not to say there aren't problems, but I can't believe we're going to have another uh, bleak year <laughs> because the pandemic's out of the way and it would have to be something else, like a, a sudden jump in interest rates because central banks put the brake uh, on, on their quantitative easing in a big way, not in a soft way, or suddenly energy prices, instead of subsiding, kept continuing. Yeah. Well, last week when Bill finished off, I reminded him that he was a board member with the AJC, and I asked him for a tip from the Everest, and he came up with Nature Strip, which actually won. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to locate you to the uh, racing industry, but what, what is your investment best idea for 2022? Oh, dear Peter, um, I've got to be careful. I don't have an investor's uh, advisor's license anymore. <laughs> I, I can't really enter into that. Um, this no, I, you, I know you, you, you'd often play the market via ETFs, don't you? That's one of, <laughs> one of the, the strategies that you use. Look, um, I'm not terrific at guessing the market. I, what I can do is tell you where the trend is going and so forth, and I can talk about the economic parameters. Um, and usually the trends, your friend, until it bends, as they say, and at present the trend is pretty friendly with stock markets. I suppose the, when I look at my own investments, I ask myself going forward what's likely to happen. I, I think the American market is dreadfully overvalued on fundamentals. On the other hand, if we're in a very low interest rate scenario, the American market's very cheap. It's called the beer ratio, the, uh, the bond to equity return uh, ratio. And um, equity returns are still much better than bonds. And so on that basis, it's one of the cheapest markets that we've had in history. On the other hand, if you look at the Schiller ratio, which is a kind of a variation on the price earnings, it's dreadfully overvalued, the most overvalued market in the world. On the other hand, other markets outside America are a little overvalued, but they're not greatly overvalued because they're not as much into high tech. Uh, a lot depends on high tech. But I think at some point there will be a rotation from value to growth. I mean, historically, value now, it looks very cheap. You have mm. to go back to decades and growth looks very expensive. So point, some point, and I, so I, yes, I, I keep buying value shares and, and it started looking good last year. Now growth is suddenly back. So uh, I, but I still have some faith in value. I once chaired a value manager and the value was always, uh, the winner until the last 10 years. Growth has been the winner. I suppose the other one is I think a rotation perhaps out of America to other markets like our own and emerging countries and so forth. Now, sure, if the future is all about high tech, then maybe America will continue to dominate. But I think what's happening is all industries are now becoming high tech. They're having to be. And I think the Australian, Australia, Europe and others are catching up. They're, high tech is going into what are value industries, if you like. They're almost becoming more growth industries. And so at some point, a rotation out of that dreadfully overvalued American market, which keeps going up, uh, yeah. into, particularly the NASDAQ, into um, other countries and their stocks as they take the technology on board. I think that's also due. So there'd be two things uh, from uh, growth to value and from America to other markets. Percy Allen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Peter. Always fun. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>